open our Bibles to Mark chapter 13. Mark, sorry, Mark 14. Everybody was looking at me funny. If you haven't been here, Mark 13 was four weeks of end of the world discussions. Um, go back and watch those on YouTube or the Facebook page. It's a lot of fun. It generated a lot of questions. Um, we might have to revisit that. Everybody likes talking about the end of the world. So, But we are now moving on to Mark chapter 14. I'm going to read the first uh, nine verses, and then we will dive in to what, uh, to what we're seeing here. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Let's pray. Father, we... Thank you again for your word. We thank you that it is the living, breathing, inspired word of God that is meant to teach us, admonish us, help us, grow us. Lord, I pray it would do all the things that you want it to do this morning, specifically in our life. Lord, I ask that you would help me to speak clearly and to communicate in a way that is helpful for everyone. Lord, I thank you for that today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, right off the bat, I'm going to read a verse that we didn't just read, and that's verse 10. So look at verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to, to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now everybody knows that's coming, so that I'm not giving that's not a spoiler. But I just want you to notice that verse 10 makes more sense if you scooched it over underneath verse 2. Because verse 1 and 2 tell us that the chief priests and the scribes are plotting to kill Jesus by stealth and in secret. And then verse 10 says, Judas was looking for an opportunity to betray him. So if, if verse 2 went right to verse 10, that would make perfect sense. But if you remember, as we've been going through the book of Mark, one of the things that he does, something that several commentators call a Markan sandwich, where he will take some other event and sandwich it in between two subjects that are the same, and he does this to bring a contrast so you can see the difference between chief priests and Judas and the woman with the alabaster flask. You see what I'm getting at? It's a juxtaposition. He wants you to see 
there's a difference and it's clearly outlined. Now, the other reason I'm pointing that out and that that's important is because chronologically, verses 3 through 9 probably don't go in here. And remember at the beginning of Mark, we said, Mark is not that worried about chronology. When we tell stories and when we give out information, we like to chronologically detail everything. A lot of times people get confused. You go on the internet and find all the internet atheist warriors that are out there. This is the kind of stuff that they bring up. Well, that, that can't be right. Cousin John had said this. And it's like, yeah, we know. Mark just doesn't care. He doesn't chronologically put it in the same order. He wants the story here because he's using it to bring a contrast to what the chief priests were like, Judas is like, and what happened here with uh, the woman that anoints Jesus for burial. But it is around the same time. So I just wanted to point that out because sometimes people go home and they read and they'll see if you read in the Synoptic Gospels, if you read in Matthew, you read Matthew, it's very similar to this. But Luke's account is different, and John's account is different. So I'm just pointing that out, and that's all I'm going to say. If you have questions, let me know, and we could go through some of the questions on that. But the first thing that, that I want all of us just to be thinking about is the framing of this time is still, it's around Passover. And we know, we just celebrated communion, that Jesus, at the Last Supper, when he gave the instructions, it was during a Passover meal. And if you remember what the Passover is, if you have no idea about the Old Testament, then the Passover doesn't make a lot of sense in, in the significance of it. But the Passover is when the death angel passed over the houses that had the blood on the post and the mantle. Everybody remember that story? It was the final plague that came through Egypt. All the firstborn died except for the Hebrews who put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and on the mantle. You don't think God had a reason for doing that? That was a, a type and a shadow of what was coming through Christ. So the Passover was a way that they celebrated. It happened typically around, it's the end of March, the beginning of April, it's in the spring, coincides with about the time we celebrate Easter, because this is the time where Jesus was, we're headed towards his crucifixion. So the Passover is followed by seven days of unleavened bread. In fact, that's what they're describing. It's the feast of unleavened bread. And they, they are remembering, God told them, keep these feast days, remember the Passover, have the Passover meal, and then have the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You eat no bread with leaven in it for the next seven days. And Passover was considered one of the high holy days in the Jewish calendar. So Jerusalem, where Jesus is two miles outside of there, uh, Mount, Mount Olives and, and Bethany area, the Passover was a, was a feast that everybody had to pilgrim into the city in order to celebrate it properly. So every year, those Jews that were close by in the surrounding regions, they would, and some of them far away, they would come into the city to celebrate. So Josephus tells us that the city would go from 
And it's hard to get really good, accurate numbers because, again, they don't, they didn't do things as necessarily accurate as we did. But somewhere between 25 and 50,000 turns into somewhere close to 250,000. So you can imagine Huntington. Has anybody tried to get out on Howard Boulevard when Marshall's playing right after the game's over? Anybody ever tried to do that before? When I first moved to Huntington and didn't realize that there was a Marshall game, I remember driving down 3rd Avenue like, what is going on? Oh, there's a, there was a football game, and I just chose the moment it was over to try to leave. That is not the right time to try to leave. You can't hardly move. Jerusalem would have felt like that. It would be jam-packed with people. So one of the things the, the scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests are saying is, and notice how, notice how this is. So these, imagine the elders of the church, Rob, Ken, Lee, Daniel, and myself, getting together and saying, we want to kill Mark. How are we going to do it? We can't do it during Christmas. There's too many people visiting. We got to find a way to do it. it that's what they're doing. We got to kill this guy. He is unacceptable. He, it, they, the hatred, everything we have been studying up to here, the hatred and the jealousy have reached a level that they are willing to openly among themselves as religious leaders discuss murder. This is the level of hatred and the level of deception that people can live with thinking they're doing God a favor. The Apostle Paul echoes this later in, when he says in his testimony, he says, I was zealous for God so much, I was imprisoning Christians and authorizing their death because I, in essence I thought I was doing God a favor. That's where these people are. So, the interesting thing is that Jesus is crucified during the feast. That's the interesting, so it doesn't work out the way they want, and I think, and we'll talk about that later, but I think it's because of Judas, because they got an insider that would betray him. But we'll talk about that in the coming weeks. So that's just kind of the background of where we're at. The next thing we really want to look at, and what our focus this morning is, is what this woman did and the reaction to it, and really the lesson that we can take from what this mystery lady did. So let's, let's look a little bit at this story. So he's at a house in Bethany, two miles outside of Jerusalem. He is eating a meal. It's at Simon the leper's house. Now Simon was not currently leprous, because you're not allowed to be around him if he is. So we don't know if this is a nickname, like Stinky, or if, or if this is something like he was healed in the ministry of Jesus, and now Jesus is at his house. That is probably the most likely scenario, but they signify that it's Simon the leper because there were a lot of folks named Simon. Um, and so they're, they're here, they're eating this meal, and while they're doing that, a woman shows up with an alabaster flask. Now, it doesn't tell us here in Mark, but it tells us in John, when he gives this account, that it weighed a pound. The, the, the nard 
or some translations say the spikenard. It, it was a perfume and ointment that came from India. It was incredibly expensive. In fact, it's so expensive that we're given the price tag in the Bible. The price tag is 300 denarii, which is one year's worth of money. So take your annual salary and go buy your wife a bottle of perfume. Anybody willing to do that? Anybody have the means to do that? Probably not. And what kind of perfume would it be to be that expensive? It is really expensive stuff. And it's in an alabaster flask, and there wasn't a cork. You had to break it open to get to what was inside. Alabaster is this white material that's beautiful, and if you get into all the stuff in the first century, you find out alabaster apparently is the best thing to put perfume in in the first century in order to keep it the way you want it to be. So she brings this, and the question is, how in the world does she even possess something like this? So she probably had this. This is the kind of thing that would be passed down probably as a family heirloom. Not something that you use, but something that you point to and say, my family has this. And if we think that's crazy, how many of us have things in our house that are worth money that we would never dream of getting rid of? Does anybody have anything like that? Family heirloom, maybe a golden ring passed down. I had a lady when I worked at the bank in Canova, her father passed away and she had belt buckles from her father who was a truck driver and he collected golden belt buckles. And by collect, I mean he saved up money over a long period of time. And then when he was driving through Texas, he would go find this place that had golden belt buckles. And he was buying this stuff in the 70s and 80s when gold was not as expensive as it is now. So when she brought it in and she said, yeah, I weighed it and I've got about 35 pounds of gold. And I just went to my computer real quick and typed in, how much is that worth? Let's just say she could have bought multiple houses with what it was worth uh, at the time. But ask the next question, did she get rid of them? No. She couldn't. Because I, I told her, I said, you can pay for your kid's college, you could pay off your house, you could, there's a lot of things you can do with this amount of money. The stuff, they found it in the attic, but it, because it was her dad's and she had seen him wear those, and because it was important to her, she couldn't part with it because the gold's value was less to her than the family significance. Everybody's following what I'm saying. We think probably this alabaster flask of a pound of spikenard in a common Jewish home was some kind of heirloom that was probably passed down. The significance is, not only was it probably monetarily valuable, it was valuable, period, to this family, to this woman. Look how loving, understanding, and compassionate the reaction is. <laughs> Look at verse 4. There were some, so Mark is being kind, 
Because Matthew tells us, or uh, uh, John tells us, it was the disciples. This is the disciples' reaction. There were some, the disciples, who said to themselves indignantly, which means they were not happy at all, they were angry. They indignantly say, why was the ointment wasted? You wasted it on Jesus. Now those words don't even go together, do they? But we have the benefit of sitting in this room 2,000 years later, looking back. But that is the words that they used. This, why was this wasted? And then they say, verse 5, this is the get out of jail clause. For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. See, we've got a good heart. That's what we're after. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. So the disciples' reaction to this perfume being used was to say, that is a waste. There is a more practical use for this. We could have sold it and then given the money to the poor. And really, I have no doubt that they probably did mean that. But I want you to think, and this I think Mark wants us to think, what you're saying is, is that it is better to do something than it is to honor the King of Kings. It's better to practically do something in the name of God than to actually honor God. It's it's better to look like we're doing the right things than it is to engage in the worship of the one who commands the right things. I want to develop that a little bit more as we go on. Let's look at how Jesus reacted. Jesus says, verse 6, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Now, some translation says a good work. The word beautiful in Greek, it's the only place I could find in the New Testament where that word is translated beautiful. Most, it's, it's 103 times in the New Testament, and almost every single time that it's used, it's translated as good. So I think it is cool that the ESV because one of the meanings of the word is beautiful, that the ESV uses the word beautiful because that gives a better description, a more worship-like description of what is actually happening. It was a good thing, but it means something different to say it was a beautiful thing that she did. That is a better conveyance of what is actually happening here. And That is what Jesus tells the disciples. What she has done, pouring a pound, and I want you to think about that, a pound of perfume on your head. That's a lot. That is a lot. 
that would be dripping down everywhere. Everybody in the room would have smelled it. But look at why Jesus says she did it. Verse 8. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Jesus is prophesying, I'm headed to the cross. I'm going to die the death of a criminal. Criminals do not receive the customary treatment to have their body anointed and when it's placed into the tomb prepared for burial. Criminals just get tossed in a hole. So she is actually doing the honorable and right thing, and Jesus is saying it's connected to his burial. And then he says something really incredible. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. This is the second lady in the Bible, in the book of Mark, that gets told to everybody what she has done is going to be remembered forever. The woman with the two mites, right, that gave the little offering, and now this woman who also gave something of great value to Jesus. So, this is really, it's a famous story. There's, there's something in here that I want us to look at and make sure that we understand what Jesus means. The, the first thing is in verse 7, he says, the poor you always have with you. Some people have taken this verse and they've used it as a reason not to help the poor. That is not what this verse means. Jesus is not poo-pooing the poor. He is saying there is always going to be poverty. There will always be poor people. And you, and he actually says it in verse 7. He says, whenever you want, you can do good for them. In other words, after I'm gone, part of the job of the church is going to be taking care of the poor. And you are going to have that job forever because the poor are always going to be there. But I am not here physically all the time. I am here in the flesh, God in the flesh. This is more important than anything. And that is really part of what we need to look at and see in here is that the value that we place on Jesus when we worship Him, when we talk about Him, when we think about Him, or to say it backwards, the value we place on Jesus when we don't think about Him at all. The value we place on Jesus, we are bored to tears reading our Bible the value we place on Jesus where we give into an offering or we give to Operation Christmas Child because we must, because we have to, because I'll be a bad person if I don't. I'm not interested in the value of the one I'm giving to. I'm interested in me not feeling guilty. Many, many, many Christians serve God out of a 
wrong fear and a sense of guilt rather than a godly fear honoring him for who he is. And this story is illustrating that the disciples, they did want, they did want to give to the poor. And Jesus is saying, there's something more important in this moment. Who is this lady? Some of you already know. Because Mark doesn't tell us. But John chapter 12 tells us in this story that this is somebody we know. Her name is Mary. It's not the mother of Jesus, Mary. It's the sister of Martha, Mary. How many of you know the sister, that story? With Lazarus, the brother of Lazarus. The sister of Lazarus. Sorry. Lazarus is the brother of Mary. Mary is, is unique in that she has gotten it right in terms of worship and honoring Jesus twice in two different directions. So it's really important, I think, to look at what she got right. So go with me, if you would, to the book of Luke, because I want to look at the story where there was another worship moment with Mary. Luke chapter 10. We're going to look at verse 38. This is a famous story. There's been lots of sermons, several books, multiple conferences around this story. Verse 38, chapter 10. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha. Martha, straight from the Brady Bunch. Except it's Marcia, sorry. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Now, I, there's, a, there's a reason sermons get preached on this. There's a lot in there. One of the things is it wasn't normal for a woman to sit at the feet of a rabbi. that Martha was actually doing what the society and culture and everybody expected. Jesus is telling Martha, you are really troubled over this stuff you're supposed to do. But Mary has actually chosen the better thing. And that better thing is listening to what I have to say. Because I am here with the words of eternal life. This is, this is a unique and awesome thing. And Mary has chosen that thing. She's sitting at my feet, and it's not going to be taken away from her. So Mary here, rather than following the cultural norms and, do, and serving as she should be, 
There is nothing wrong with what Martha is doing. She gets it right. How do we look, how do you know that she's getting it right? Because Jesus is telling us she's getting it right. Jesus is saying she's chosen the good thing, the right thing. And in the story we read in Mark, he's saying the same thing. Mary is batting a thousand. She is she understands what worship is because the value she is placing on Jesus. The question is, what are we valuing? Because that is where our worship actually goes. The reason idolatry is such an issue, everybody knows what idolatry is. I always feel like I have to explain it because when I was a kid and the pastor said idolatry, I always thought it meant, I always thought it meant adultery. Like, so in my mind, everybody's committing adultery. Although, I mean, the pastor was talking about it all the time. He's talking about idolatry, putting idols in front of God, putting your worship, your affection, and your attention in front into something else other than God. Money gets used most frequently for that. Jesus says you can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and money because money is a thing that consumes hearts and minds. And the way that you worship a thing is to be consumed by the thing. And that's what idol worship is. Nobody has statues up in their house that they're bowing down to as far as I know. If you are, you should quit immediately. But we all have an ongoing fight in our life to value what is supremely valuable, which is Jesus. Because it's a lot easier to value the immediate pressing needs that are in front of me. That's why money is such a prime candidate for worship because we need it in order to live. But Mary, batting a thousand, understands that the value she places on Jesus results in her doing worship two different ways. One, sitting at the feet of Jesus, receiving from him and his word, and two, anointing him in an act of sacrifice of this family heirloom, probably at the very least a very valuable item. She gave it all away, surrendered all of it to him. It kind of, as I was looking at this and and thinking about it, I was thinking, how do I make it make sense that serving is not wrong, Giving to the poor is not wrong, but they are second tier to what is the most important thing, which is Jesus. Because because your mind, my brain says, but wait, if I'm serving Jesus, aren't aren't I supposed to be doing things? Aren't I supposed to be giving to the poor? Am I not supposed to be serving? Well, yes, you're commanded to do those things. But what I think, and I think everybody will relate to this. I'm going to give it, wrap all this up with a story that I hope makes it make sense. It is easier for us as Christians 
to do things so we can say that we did them, and yet our heart is somewhere else. Does everybody know what I mean? It, Jesus said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They're saying all the right words. They're using all the right phrases. They sang the song. They sat in the chair. What else do you want from me, preacher? I'm here. Everybody I work with, they're cheating on their wives, cheating on their taxes, cheating on their time card. I'm here and I'm honest. What are you looking for? What we're looking for is hearts that belong to Jesus all the time in a sense of valuing Him above everything else. I think that radical Christianity actually looks like people who value Jesus above everything else, which causes them to do all of those things. So out of the value of Christ that He is worthy of a year's worth of spikenard, He is worthy of sitting at His feet, He's worthy of my adoration and worship, He's worthy of my tears and my laughter. He's worthy of my time and my money. He's worthy of all of it. Out of that, I serve. Out of that, I give. Out of that, I help other people. And most of us, we just it's easier to turn that upside down and do the actions without the heart without the affection. Colossians chapter 2 says, set your affections on things above, not on things of the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Sometimes you read the Bible and you realize this is the language of the Bible is radical. There isn't a place for us to be casually interested in Christ, but my real life is outside of the four walls, and my real life is my job, and my real life is my family. That has been, unfortunately, the way a lot of people have lived their life with God for decades, for years. What God wants is our heart. If He has our heart, He has our affections, then we live in such a way that is worshipful to Him at all times. It's not merely coming in and lifting your hands in a service, though it certainly includes that. It's the way that we are living our life. So there isn't a competition between people who, like all the sermons on, well, there's Martha people and there's Mary people. There shouldn't be a competition there should be both people in the same body with different personalities. We, we all are supposed to be people who are serving the Lord because we love the Lord. Not serving the Lord because I gotta, because I have to, because I must, because I was raised this way. I'll feel guilty if I don't. That is not what God is after. In fact, the language of the Bible tells me that what we are supposed to have is intense, radical joy over what God has done. And many of us just don't. Many of us are just stumbling in every Sunday, just 
half hanging on. And we, we know that there are periods of times where we as Christians go through incredibly difficult things, and that isn't what I'm criticizing. What I mean is, is that our hearts are not consumed with Christ. They're consumed with other things. There's idolatry. There's other things in his place. What I am calling for in this message is for us to say, I want to take honest stock of my life, and I want to, I want to take honest stock of my emotional involvement with life. How much of my heart does God have? I want to read Psalm 84. In fact, if everybody would turn there. I just want you to hear the way the psalmist put this together. Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. Now before we go any further, does anybody talk like this? Do you think like this? Do you feel like this? How lovely is your dwelling place? O Lord of hosts, my soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Do, do you hear the way it sounds and the way it feels? You, you hear the language of the psalmist? There's joy and there is longing. We talk this way when your heart becomes infatuated with another person. We call it falling in love, right? Many, many songs have been written about it. Shakespeare wrote some excellent plays about it. And that language makes sense for other people, it seems to us. But the psalmist is talking this way about God. And I just wonder, have you ever thought of God like this? in terms of longing, fainting to be close to him. Even the sparrow finds a home, verse 3, and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. At your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. One day with God is better than a thousand places anywhere else. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. I would rather stand at the door, not even get into the sanctuary, just so I can hear the worship and praise of God going on in. As long as I'm just keeping the door, at least I'm close to that. Do you, get the, do you get the feeling of what is going on here? 
For the Lord God is a sun and shield, for the, and the Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Just call your attention that at the end of the psalm, he says, he doesn't withhold any good thing from those who walk uprightly. God wants us walking uprightly. He wants us serving. He wants us giving to the poor. But it has to be done in the context that our heart belongs to him. And so out of that, I am doing the things that I should be doing. Never should I be doing the things that are right just so I can say that I did them. I shouldn't just be honoring God with words, but my heart really belongs to work. I shouldn't be honoring God with my time at church, but my heart really belongs to a relationship or to something else. Our hearts, our affections, our desires are to belong to Him. Let me give you four things, an illustration, and we will go home. Here are some things that we can take out of all this that we've read. Number one, let's use Mary as an example. Let's sit at the feet of Jesus and read his word. She sat at Jesus' feet to receive teaching from him. I would encourage you, you don't have to wait till January 1st, okay? It's like January 1st is some magical thing to start reading through the Bible in a year. Just We've got read through the Bible in a year programs out there. You can get them on your phone. You can download Bible apps that will remind you every day. There's all kinds of things you can do, but I would say spending time with his word and asking him to show you things out of it is a great place to start. Number two, point your affections and your heart and your passions and your mental energy towards Jesus. And you will probably need to couple that with prayer because you're going to need help. Because I need help. I need mercy and grace every day because I am not in some ivory tower preaching the sermon. I get bored thinking about reading the Bible. And I love the Bible. There are times I'm like, I don't, I just, just want to play Candy Crush on my phone and not think about anything. There's nothing wrong with playing Candy Crush on your phone. At least I hope not because I've played a few levels of that. But if I am always looking for something else to distract me, always looking for something else, that's when I say, Lord, my heart affections. I just want to be comfortably numb, and that's obviously wrong. Lord, get my heart hot, passionate. Get me right. Sing, number three. Sing. Sing in your car, sing in the shower, sing in your bedroom. Sing. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Sing. Worship Him. When you feel like it and when you don't feel like it. And when you don't feel like it, say, Lord, I would rather feel like it. Help. I need help. Pray. Weep. God wants us to enjoy him. The Westminster Confession says that the chief end of man or the chief purpose of man is to worship God, to glorify God, and enjoy Him forever. Enjoy Him. Most people don't look at it that way, but that is what we are supposed to be doing. And then number four, 
absolutely serve, absolutely give, absolutely get involved, absolutely put other people first, do all of those things as a valuable service of worship to the King of Kings, not as something that's disconnected just so I can say that I'm doing it. Here's what I mean by that. I'm stealing this illustration from a John Piper sermon, but it makes so much sense I don't know a better illustration to give you. If on my anniversary, which is August the 14th, I walk up to Jennifer and I give her a dozen roses and I say, here's a necklace, happy anniversary. And she says, Steve, that's wonderful. Thank you so much. I love you. And I say, it was my duty. Everybody feels the romance already, don't you? Why do you instinctively know that's wrong? Even though, isn't that kind of my duty as her husband? I mean, is it wrong that I gave her flowers? Is it wrong that I gave her the necklace? Why is it wrong for me to tell her it's my duty? It's wrong for the same reason that it's wrong when you do the right things with your heart somewhere else. It's my duty. Got to do it. Making sacrifices for Jesus. Kind of just want Homer to know that I did it. But, I'm, you know, I got to do these things. We, it, it's the same kind of wrong. What, what does Jennifer really want? Jennifer wants me to bring those flowers to her and the necklace, which aren't really the point. And then when she says, I love you and thank you, I say back to her, if I had it all over to do again, I would marry you again. Is that the right answer? That is the right answer. We know why that's the right answer. Because one is mechanical and feels gross. How dare you? You would be mad at me if you found out that I gave Jennifer You all would be mad at me if I gave her flowers and told her it was my duty. Monica would say, Steve, I thought better of you. Every one of you would do that. Like, how in the world? How dare you do that to her? Everybody would get defensive. In fact, some of you stiffened up as I even said it. So you know that it's wrong because the heart has to be involved. That's what I'm saying that the woman who broke the alabaster flask did. Her heart was involved, and Jesus said, everybody's going to hear about this everywhere the gospel is proclaimed. It's not that the disciples were wrong in saying, we could have given this money to the poor. It's that their heart wasn't invested in Jesus and his value in that moment. They were thinking pragmatically. And Judas, you find out in John chapter 12, was actually thinking, I can steal some of that money. But that's a different story what we'll get to later. There is the end of the sermon. Let's go ahead and stand up. Bible college, they sometimes teach you creative ways to end a sermon. Sometimes it's just better to say, that's it, it's over, we're going to pray. That's why I don't teach in Bible college. <laughs>
Let's let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning in Jesus' name. We thank you so much for this day. We thank you for your goodness, your kindness to us. Lord, help us to be people that worship you and value you from our hearts. Lord, show us how to do that without constantly trying to figure out if we're doing it the right way or not. But Lord, that we would just live and breathe and move and have our being in you. And that you would alert us by your spirit when we are off track and where we are putting service or practical things in front of you. God, I pray that we would all be like the psalmist in Psalm 84, where we long for you and for your presence. Lord, we thank you for this. Help us to be witnesses this week. Thank you so much, Lord, for the encouragement you gave earlier in the service, Lord, that you are with us. We thank you. We will carry that with us this week. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Church, you are officially dismissed.